The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We have been in the middle of a series called Undaunted. We're looking at the life of David uh, over the last several weeks. And what we've uh, chosen to do is we're now within kind of a little mini-series within that uh, Undaunted series about sin. Because we know that all of you woke up this morning and you said, I'm going to go to Hilton Presbyterian Church, and I really hope that they're talking about sin, right? That's our natural response for sin. No, it's not. But I hope that out of this, uh, we'll see the gospel more clearly. So where we've, been, where we've come from is that last week, uh, Bill McCutcheon taught on the seduction of sin, sort of the dangers of sin. And within that text, we covered David and Bathsheba, covered uh, the fact that David was on the rooftop, uh, home from the war, saw Bathsheba, had her uh, called for her, and then got her pregnant, and then tried to cover it up by having her husband, who was uh, fighting in the war, Uriah, came home, hoping that uh, you know, he would cover it up, and he chose to not go into the house because he was an honorable man and said, all of my, my friends are in this battle, how am I going to go home and be with my wife? That's not right. And so then after that, David uh, decided to have him murdered. And so we've just finished from last week uh, looking at this just mighty downfall of this uh, David that we've been covering, we've been looking at, and it's sort of confusing. And so that's why last week we talked about the dangers of sin, the seductive nature of sin. This week we're covering restoration from sin, of what does that look like? Where do we go from here when we finish a week like last week where we hear about how, how much David messed up? And then next week Bill will be back and he'll be covering the consequences of sin. So that's kind of our little three-part series in the middle of this bigger series called Undaunted. So our text this week is from 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15. And if you're familiar with uh, this part, this is when Nathan comes to David and uh, basically calls him out, addresses this. And, and also, if you're familiar with this, you know that there's two Psalms that kind of go together with this. Immediately after this, David wrote Psalm 51, which is a very uh, famous Psalm of lament of his confession, uh, confession, and then right after that he wrote Psalm 32. So to start off, I'm just going to read 1 Samuel 12, but then my second and third points will be coming from those Psalms. So let's go to the word of the Lord this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel 12, or to be on the screen behind me. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his, ar- in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. But Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more, 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went up to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Let's pray. God, we pray now as we approach your word that we would be willing to open our hearts to to the areas that we're not often willing to let you go. God, we pray that that you give us eyes to see the truth of your gospel, that we would understand more about who we are, and then most of all, understand more about who you are and the life that is to be found in you. Pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, there's no unawkward way to say that I'm going to give another Avengers illustration, so I'm just going to go ahead and and do it. That's kind of my thing, is every time I preach, I give something from the Avengers. Uh, But this part is too good with this text. So in the movie The Avengers, there's this uh, character, Loki, who's known as like the evil god of thunder, and then he's having a conversation with one of the characters named Natasha, who is this former Russian spy, And, and Natasha goes to him, and she's trying to, to help her friend Banner, who's been captured. He's also known as the Hulk in the Avengers. And she comes to him, and then when Loki says, like, why do you care? She says something really interesting. She says, I have red in my ledger, and I'd like to wipe it out. And then Loki's response, I just think, is so fascinating. Listen to what he says in this movie. So she says, I have red in my ledger. I need to wipe it out. And he says, can you? Can you wipe out that much red? And then he goes on saying the thing she's done. Drakoff's daughter, Sao Paulo, the hospital fire. Barton told me everything. Your ledger is dripping. It's gushing red, and you think saving a man no more virtuous than yourself will change anything? This is the basis sentimentality. This is a child's prayer. Pathetic. You lie and kill in the service of liars and killers. You pretend to be separate, to have your own code, something that makes up for the horrors, but they are a part of you, and they will never go away. It's fascinating. You know why? Because this introduces a concept in our culture that is just widely agreed on, and that's that none of us are perfect. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, all of humanity recognizes that we miss some kind of mark, that we're not perfect. And out of this, I think it's so obvious that the people watching this movie will identify with this. And so for us this morning, for sinners everywhere and for David, I think the question that we have to now address is, can you really wipe out that much red? Can it really be wiped out? Once again, my desire for the Avengers writers to fully just explain the gospel and go into scripture has been let down, so I'm just going to kind of say it. We as Christians should hear something like this, And to say, that sounds familiar. 
there is red in my ledger, and it's called sin. And there is this, this tension. I, I had this need to make up for it because I know that the holy God and sinful people can't dwell together. And so out of this, our response should be, we know the answer. You see, we recognize that we need restoring from sin. And that's what this text brings out. I think it brings it out in three ways. Three ways. So if you're a, a note-taking person, here are three points. It's that we see the need for a Nathan, the need for repentance, and the need for a Savior. We have a need for a Nathan, the need for repentance, and the need for a Savior. So I won't re, uh, reread this whole first part, but in the beginning it happens. Nathan uh, is sent by the Lord to come to David and starts telling him the story. He says there's a rich man and a poor man, and that uh, a traveler came, and it was kind of custom to be able to sacrifice one of your animals in order to be hospitable for the traveler. And instead of this man, uh, the rich man, sacrificing his own, he goes to the poor man and takes away the only lamb that he actually has that is treasured by him. You see, they're doing this because Scripture pays special attention to injustice. And in fact, it was the king's job to be approached to say, here's an injustice, what are you going to do about it? So what Nathan is doing is he's going to David, the king, and saying, look at this scenario, look at what's happening And so he's appealing not only to David as the king, but he's also just appealing to him as a person because the reality is all of us have this sense of justice in us. All of us are made in God's image, and so we care about seeing justice carried out. And Nathan Nathan hopes that this will appeal to this side of David, and it does. Look at what David said. The text says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he, sh- and he sh- shall restore the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Can you see the anger in David? I think what's starting to come out is a concept that we all can kind of relate to. It's that when we're in a season of unconfessed sin, it is so much easier to see someone else's sin than our own. It is so much easier to be reminded to see someone's sin than to look at ourselves. And just when basically David's heartbeat of self-righteousness is at its peak, Nathan comes in with that blow in your text and just says, you are that man. And then Nathan goes on and reminds him the promises of God because so often what we do in our sin is we forget the promises of God. Nathan says, look, God has given you a kingdom. He's given you all of Israel. He's he's led you out of uh, defeat from Saul. He's given you his kingdom. He's given you his blessings. And he would have even given you more if you had said that that wasn't enough. And instead, you looked at God and said, I'm going to go my way. I'm going to ignore the plan that you have for me. You know what? We should look at this text and just keep thinking. Like, thank God for Nathan. Nathan was responsible. Think about who David was. Nathan was responsible for bringing out, yes, by the Holy Spirit's power, but bringing out conviction from a man that was described as a man after God's own heart. Thank God for Nathan. And so the question with us with this first point is, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone that knows you so well, that knows your tendencies, that knows the the triggers that you have of where you're prone to to wander. 
And then the flip side of that, right, is are you a Nathan to someone? Have you been willing to, to bypass the, the casual subtleties and pleasantries of normal conversation within your friendships and said, I'm going to have a hard conversation with you and it won't be easy? I have a friend from uh, Clemson named John that uh, we just hit it off in the very beginning with. This was 10 years ago, and he and I have been keeping in touch ever since. He lives far away, but we have an agreement that I want to share that I think might be kind of confusing or, or scary, but just kind of bear with me, and I want to walk you through it. See, John and I, we like to call occasionally, catch up on the phone. We have this policy where if one of us calls and you're busy, you can't answer, just go ahead and leave it to voicemail. That's fine. But if we call a second time in a row, there's an understanding that, hey, if you can get away from that family dinner or that meeting, just, just go ahead and leave for a second like I need to talk. But if we call a third time in a row, we have an agreement that even if you're speaking to a conference of 2,000 people, you leave and answer the phone. The reason that we do this is not because there's been some event that happened that I said we need this. The reason we do this is because we recognize how dangerous sin is. We recognize that Satan, because he can't have us eternally, wants nothing more than to destroy our marriages. Wants nothing more than to destroy our family. That's the nature of how dangerous sin is. And so we've decided to try to have a Nathan in our lives. I heard a story from a buddy who uh, has a friend who loves snakes. I absolutely hate snakes. Those of you who hate snakes, you're going to cringe. I'm sorry, I'm cringing right with you on this. He has a pet boa constrictor. And uh, yeah, you know this is going to be bad. So he has a pet boa constrictor, and he was describing this snake, and he said, this snake is like just so awesome. She's always happy. She's always just like hanging out with me. And uh, he, he was at a vet appointment one time, and just, just describing the, the snake to the vet and just kind of getting a checkup. And he said, uh, yeah, this is like the most cuddly snake ever. Like we'll sit on the couch, watch a movie. And he said, but what I started doing was like I started uh, like sleeping with the snake. She would just kind of curl up next to me. And what started happening over time he said, is that she would start kind of just lining herself up all the way against my body and just kind of like snuggle in close. She's just like the most cuddly snake ever. And the vet looked at him and said, please don't ever do that. She's not cuddling with you. She's sizing you up. She's waiting to see when she's going to be big enough to destroy you. Now, if that sounds scary, just listen. What do you think we're dealing with when we have unconfessed sin in our life? You're not cuddling with a puppy. You're cuddling with a snake. And I don't know how, how tall it might be. It might be two feet tall, or you might be six feet, and it's 5'11". But you are messing with something that can destroy you. See, sometimes I think we think of sin as sin is just an option that we occasionally encounter, right? Like it's a door that we open, and we say, oh, whoops, that was sinful, that's sin. I'm going to close that, and then walk away and be free. The reality is sin has an agenda, Sin has, sin knows you and knows where you're weak. It has a tactic, and it's sizing us up, left undealt with, to destroy us. You know the hero of that story? You probably realized it. It's the vet, right? Like, how much would you have to hate a patient to not say, hey, if you continue on the trajectory that you're on, your pet boa constrictor is going to wrap itself around you and kill you? In the same way, how much as a Christian would we have to hate another Christian to say, if you continue on the trajectory that you're on, sin is going to devour you. 
Sin is sizing you up, getting itself ready to end you. None of us would say that we hate someone like that. All of us. And so we all have to model this with our lives. So look what happens next. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. As a result of Nathan coming to him, pleading with him, getting him to see the dangers of what he's doing, we, all of us just kind of wait and see, and all the tension is kind of resolved in David saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And so often I think we think we have two options, right, with, with this text. Either David is genuinely repentant, right, or he's not sorry, he's just sorry he got caught, right? Here's where our Psalm 51 comes into play in the second point. It'll be on the screen behind me. We're just going to read the first uh, seven verses of this. This is David after realizing his sin, after Nathan coming to him, uh, bringing it up. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness of the bones that you have broken. Rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, these are not the words of a man that's just sorry he got caught, right? We can all agree to that. Look at what he says. He says, for I know my transgressions. He's making it personal. My sin is ever before me. So how does conviction happen? I want you to think about something for a second. Think about Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. And what prophet's role was in the Old Testament was they were to bring the word of the Lord, the spoken word of the Lord, to people, to kings, and say, this is what God's plan is. This is what God has for you, what he wants to say about where you're at in your life right now. Now, we don't have prophets anymore. We don't believe that someone speaking can say, this is literally the word of the Lord. We believe that scripture is closed, that it's complete to us. This is God's final revelation. But what we do have is we still have the word of the Lord. And so the same way that David was convicted of this sin by the power of the Holy Spirit is the same way that we are convicted of sin. And that's by reading his word, his written word to us. You see, I'm... I'm going to admit something as a pastor. I am, so, I am so tempted by a certain mindset I think all of us have. And it's that when I go to read my Bible, I make it a checklist, right? I think, well, I'm going to read my Bible. I need to read Scripture because that's what a good Christian does. And it becomes just another thing in my day. And what happens when I do that is that I get rid of the potential for God's Word to come in and expose to me the areas that I'm not willing to let the Gospel go to. What if we started going to God's word, to these scriptures, and said, I am sure I have unconfessed and unrealized sin, and so I'm going to read it not because it makes me a better Christian, but because it makes him a bigger savior to me. 
And then once we get to this point, once we have this conviction, I think a lot of times we, we go to a certain place. You see, our first tactic is to try to get rid of that guilt feeling, right? Uh, we do this in every other area of our lives. So I'm like the world's worst eater, um, absolutely horrible. And, and so often what I do after like a milkshake or another hamburger or dessert or whatever is, is I just try to kind of dismiss the fact that I just did it, right? Well, I think I'm going to work out later or I'm going to run more tomorrow or whatever. So we do this all the time. Once we feel guilt about something, we try to kind of think, okay, how can I just get rid of those guilty feelings? And the problem with that is that we start doing that with sin. We, we start doing that with the things that are not meant to be ended there. And I think we do this in two ways. We either try to diminish the sin, right? We, we say, okay, yes, I sinned. Yes, I feel conviction and guilt, but at least it wasn't this sin, and fill in the blank, with whatever sin you think is worse than the sin that you just did. Or the second way that we're guilty, the second thing that we often do, is that we go and we take ourselves out of the responsibility of the sin, right? We say, well, the circumstances made me sin. Look at, look at what was presented. Look at how hard my life is. Look at what I'm dealing with. I mean, I had no choice but to, but to fall in to this sin. And look at what David says. He looks and he says, I did this. It's bad, and it's what I did. And in fact, he goes one step further, something that probably most of us wouldn't in good conscience admit, but he says, in my womb did my mother conceive me. I was born into sin. What he's saying there is that I had no choice but to have this sinful behavior come out. It is completely and utterly mine, and I'm responsible for it. And then what he does next is he models repentance. He models the need for repentance, and he shows us what repentance is. Is. You see, this is a term that we often used in Christian circles in the church, right? Repentance. We've all heard it. And I think so often, a lot of times we think when I say the word repent, we think that it just means to stop, right? Stop the behavior, stop sinning, stop doing what you're doing. But repentance is actually a military term for march. What it actually means is that you're heading a certain way. And repentance means stop, turning around, and heading the other direction, And the direction that we head towards, the direction that God wants us to head towards, is we walk towards Christ. We walk towards the cross. Listen to what 1 John 2 says about the direction that we walk towards. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of of the whole world. You get to run into the arms of a divine Savior who hung on the cross for you. And the hardest part about repentance is that you actually have to look at the nails that were given into his hands and say, my sin drove those nails. You see, attention throughout this text. Did you notice that when Nathan is describing this scenario, uh, he's, he's saying all this injustice, and then the response from David is, this man deserves to die. And then when Nathan says, you are that man, and then goes on with his speech, I can't help but think that David thought, I just gave myself my own death notice. I just declared that the proper punishment for this level of injustice is death. And so now as I'm listening to Nathan, I'm thinking, there's no way out of this. I deserve to die. And that's why it's fascinating to read what David writes in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is David's reflection on experiencing the gospel of grace 
again. You see, something that Nathan knew if he brought David with him to this place is that he knew the God that he was bringing him to. He knew the character and the nature of God. He knew that this is a a just but a forgiving and merciful God. And so David, it's important to see, David's not becoming a Christian for the first time. David has been a follower of Christ and is in a season of unrepentant, unconfessed sin. And so in Psalm 32, I think if we read it, you can really understand that that is the heartbeat that we have as Christians when we see, gosh, I just messed up one more time. It just happened again. I just promised God that it wouldn't happen again. And with David, he reads this and he writes this and he experiences God's grace once again. You see, we often think that the grace that needs to be given to us the moment we become a Christian is a different grace than what it takes to keep us from sinning. I'm here to tell you, you need the same power, that same power of the Holy Spirit, God's forgiveness, that saved you the moment you believed and that you are now considered God's child for eternity. That same grace is needed in our lives daily to help us battle our fight with sin. And Psalm 32 is David realizing that. So I'm just going to read uh, the first few verses. This is David realizing his need for a Savior. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, I let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Can you see the tension that David just released? A lot of people don't realize this, but there's a timeline to note. The timeline between when David first sinned and when Psalm 51 wrote, was written by him was about a year. So David kept in his silence this for about a year. I couldn't help but think of something that kind of happened in my life. When I was in eighth grade, uh, all throughout middle school and high school, I was like the world's worst student. And in eighth grade, it was just like the worst year that I had ever had. I actually, I failed like three subjects in eighth grade. And so eighth grade is middle school graduation. And so my whole family comes out. Oh, actually, an important thing to note is that I didn't tell my family that I failed three subjects and I wouldn't be graduating uh, from middle school. So my whole family comes out, my grandparents fly out from L.A. on a Wednesday night to come watch me graduate on Thursday, and I'm sitting up in my room thinking, i got to do something about this. So I went downstairs, and I just said, I just said, hey guys, thank you so much for coming. Um, I actually failed three subjects this year, so I won't be graduating tomorrow. I am so sorry. And then I walked upstairs. Here's, here's the trap that I fell into, and it's the trap that David fell into, and it's the trap that, that Satan wants you to think. It's that your silence is going to mean more tolerable than your confession of sin. 
Hear, hear me on that. Satan wants you to think that your silence is the proper remedy for unconfessed sin. Just don't bring it up. This will go better for you if you don't actually speak it. And I can imagine that the biggest thing Satan doesn't want us to do is to be able to echo the words with David that says, My transgression is forgiven. My Lord counts no iniquity against me anymore. There is no more red in my ledger. Those are dangerous words to an enemy that wants us to hold our sin against us. Part of the restoration process from sin is that you have to see yourself fully redeemed by a Savior. You have to see that the price that was paid was 100% enough. I had a pastor in my life that kind of described this process of God forgetting our sin, and and I understand what he was kind of trying to get at, but I think it was actually really unhelpful. I thought about it later on. He used to say that God, uh, how he forgot our sin, because, you know, when you first hear about this, you think, well, he's God. Like, how is he able to just forget about it? Uh, this pastor told me that God would just give himself voluntary amnesia. And I thought about that, and I thought, okay, that, that sounds good in theory, but what's the reality? It's that, say if there's a judge, and he knows that there's a penalty due for your sins, and all of a sudden he just, like, has amnesia, there's still a penalty due for your sins. There's still a price to be paid. Here's what this is actually like. You're in a courtroom. Your punishment your sins were just read, and you just admitted guilty. And the judge just read you a sentence that said death. And in the middle of this, someone came in and said, I will pay that penalty for him. And all of us would look and say, you're crazy. You didn't do anything wrong. And Christ on the cross says, you're absolutely right. That's why I'm the one that has to pay the penalty for your sins. That's what this is like. I had a seminary professor who told a story uh, of a couple he was counseling, and the couple got engaged and married, and then shortly after getting married, uh, they became a Christian. Both of them became Christians. And the wife sat the husband down one day, and through the Holy Spirit's conviction, she was convicted of an earlier sin, and she sat him down and talked about an affair that she had had early on in their marriage. And she finished and waited for the husband's response, and the husband just stood up and said, I'll be right back, and walked out. And the wife just thought, there's no way he's coming back. About an hour later, the husband comes back in with a box. And he gives it to his wife. And she unwraps it. And it's a white dress. And he puts it on her. And he says, this is how Christ sees you. And this is how I choose to see you too. My friends, Satan wants nothing more than for you to be told the answer to, can you wipe out right in your ledger, is no. He wants nothing more than for that to be a stopping point in your shame and guilt and to say, you know what, I feel convicted of my sin. I guess there's nothing I can do. And here's why that's so dangerous, is that that's a trick question. Can you really wipe out that much red? No, you can't. But there's one that can. There's one that actually can fully pay for all your sins and is the true way that you're restored from your sin. I'll end with... One of the fascinating parts about this scene is that as a result of Loki kind of like shaming and guilting Natasha for the wrong things that she did, it actually gave away his plan. What happens is she calls him a monster. He says, no, you brought the monster. And then she said, oh, so that's your play. You're going to release the Hulk. He basically showed her that his plan was to release the Hulk in the ship and he was going to destroy and turn against them. 
and everything. And I can't help but think, is that not what Satan's play is with us in the middle of our shame and guilt? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Use it against him. Use the accusations of the enemy that says there is no answer, there is nothing you can do about the red in your ledger. It should make us think, you know what, there is red in my ledger. And you're right, it is a huge amount of red, but one has died so that I can no longer fear. You say, you remind me of the answer. And you know what you really remind him of? You tell him, you know how you really defeat a snake? God told us how to do it in Genesis 3. He said what he was going to do. He said to the serpent, you'll crush his heel, it'll hurt but my son will crush your head on the cross. And it will be a final victory and a final blow. And Satan will ultimately be defeated. And that's the reason for how do we wipe out all that much red? We don't. Christ does. Let's pray.